Hey, and welcome back to part two of our Dorothy L. Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsey extravaganza. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Oh, we're extravaganza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we uh, have done a lot of research, and thus far in the previous episode, um, we covered Dorothy's early life and uh, her early novels, those being in order Whose Body, Clouds of Witness, Unnatural Death, and the Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. And that takes us up through uh, 1928 of Dorothy's life. Now, we've done a lot of research and reading, as we outlined last time, and I will, I will reiterate before we go on that we both strongly recommend that you read the novels in order. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. Everything develops chronologically, which is, I think is one of the strongest points of the novels, is that the characters age in real time, essentially, and things follow logically and psychologically coherently because of what's happened in past books. Now, one of the challenges that we've really had here with the structuring of this is there's a lot of material, and the books, we would like to cover them in order for you, just like they should be read in order, at least cover the ones that we think are the most interesting. For example, we didn't really go into Clouds of Witness. Great book, but it doesn't have as much uh, relevance to Dorothy's life itself. And we really want to elucidate her character, tell you about what she was interested in, who she was, and uh, how that comes out through the work itself. Now we're entering a, a period where it's going to be a little bit difficult to structure, so please bear with us, and uh, we will. you can contact us if you've got any questions. We would love to answer them or clear anything up that we've said here today. At this point, we're getting into uh, the period of, I believe, 1931, her novel Strong Poison. This is a really pivotal and important novel in the series. It covers pivotal and important aspects of Dorothy's life. The issue is that the timing doesn't line up exactly. For example, the novel wasn't written at the time of the incidents of her life. It was written uh, several years later. So everything has a lag of about five or six years. So uh, we're trying to figure out here how we can best tell you about her life and how they relate to the novels and kind of keep things going together at, at the same pace, even though the two strands, the, the writing and her life, are not parallel. They're not next to each other in terms of the timeline. So we'll have to bear with that. Now, the the novel was written in 1931, and it relates, I'm not going to tell you about the plot right now. First of all, it relates to a relationship that she had in 1924. Before we talked about her her loves. There was uh, Hugh Percy she had been uh, in love with or had a crush on, shall we say, while she was in school in Oxford. There's Eric Welton, who was a grand passion of hers. She kind of went over the moon for him, and he ended up rejecting her, and her passion probably was too much for him, whatever. Uh, so she, what happens is she ends up falling in love with another guy in 1924, and this guy, John, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, Cornus. He was a Russian emigre, a poet, kind of a, you know, biggish guy of the time. He um, was not as good a writer as Dorothy as uh, time ends up showing, but at the time he was very highbrow, and she was considered lowbrow with her genre. Exactly. It was very up in the nose, up in the air. And actually, most of the genre then was not that great. It was the writers of the golden age of British crime or detective fiction, that raised that genre from really something that was pulpy and not throwaway and not that great to something that had real literary merit, like 
uh, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote the Father Brown mysteries, and mm -hmm. Dorothy, and Agatha Christie, and uh, people like that. But at the time, it did not have any cachet at all. It was definitely considered cheap. And so John Cornos, he kind of considered it cheap. How would this be? Okay, let me give you a picture, okay, do, where Dorothy is in her life at this time. In her life at this time, she had been struggling to make a living, to figure out where her place was in the world, what she was going to do. She ended up, after um, breaking up with Eric and their teaching gig, um, and this is all in the previous episode, so I'm going over it very quickly. Uh, she ended up being in a publishing company for a while. Back in England. Back in England. She's all, yeah, because she'd been in France when she was teaching. And uh, World War II has passed. We're between the two world wars. Uh, she learns a lot at this, at this job, but it doesn't pay much at all. And she's struggling financially, and so there she is. And she publishes her first Lord Peter Whimsey novel. And it's successful, but it's no... Harry Potter, shall we say. <laughs> and yeah, she, I mean, it sells enough that the publisher will take more. It's not enough for her to live on at all, so she has to find work while she's also writing the novel. So she puts out her second novel and her third novel, and that's going along during this time period. So what happens is she meets uh, John Cornos, and she goes gaga over him the way she went over Eric Welpton. So John Cornus, and if you will look up a picture of him, it would be great if we could like put all these photographs. We can definitely link their Wikipedia pages if they have them, or link photos. To something. Okay, we'll, we'll put some links in the notes, and you can take a look at this guy. He looks a lot like Eric Welton, who looks a lot like Lord Peter Whimsey, <laughs> in terms of the long nose, the long face, the sort of aesthetic look. He's not a bad-looking guy. He's a good-looking guy and everything. Anyway, she's totsy totsy for him and they're having a, a really really intense relationship and he wants to sleep with her. Now Dorothy is religious but she's not necessarily like oh I won't have she's very complicated. She's kind of pragmatic too. Yeah her ideas just don't seem to always lie. We kind of figure out what what's going on with her but essentially she didn't object to sleeping with him. She objected to using um, contraception oh. and they didn't have the pill then. So it wasn't a pill, it was a condom. It was basically what you'd use. They, they might have had diaphragms, but I think they were illegal, so they might not have been around, but they did have. And so she w didn't want to have uh, relations that were tainted of the rubber shop. <laughs> Is that a quote? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't get it. And it wasn't a Catholic thing, as we've no, she's also not Catholic. seen in her um, she's not Catholic. manifesto of the bedroom. Right, right. Yeah, so it's not like... She, oh, only if we produce children is it okay. Did she want to have a child to sort of cement him to her? Or maybe she was just so intense and looking and looking for, like, the most... She wanted to, like, meld together as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of. I, I, or it, she thought they'd be bound together a little bit more yeah. by not using that barrier. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but she, it doesn't, it just... It doesn't make any sense in all the stuff I've read. It doesn't really make any sense because she doesn't have a problem if you're in love with somebody and, and very advisedly having sex outside of marriage. She, that wasn't it. And it wasn't that she thought, she, like from her manifesto, that it was only for procreation. So it doesn't make any sense to me. But that was the issue. That's where she, that's, that's the reason she gave for digging her heels in. And Cornos, uh, he, uh, he wasn't about to take that risk he didn't he wasn't that into her and and if we've noted before this is her pattern of getting to be with men who are just not that into her but she's really into them I know it's really sad 
So she has this big, long, intense relation. Well, it wasn't that long. It was a, a year or two or a couple years. He made her feel... He, he criticized her. I mean, it was just really one of those classic relationships where she was so into him. And then he he kind of liked her, but he also maybe was intimidated or whatever because, I mean, she's a genius, frankly. And he would intimidate her and make her feel bad about herself and criticize her writing and that, you know, she was writing trash. And But she clung to him until finally, uh, finally they broke up and he moved away. She both was relieved... And it, it met her, her principles, I guess. But she also, you know, just like with anything, was devastated and sad and uh, kind of bitter a, a little bit. Mm. Because what happened then in the next few years is he married some woman. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't going to marry her. And she was a mystery writer. The woman he married you... a mystery writer? Oh, my God, you didn't tell me that before. Yeah. Somebody who oh, we shit. never even heard of today. Yeah, can you believe that he did that? That's unbelievable. I mean, what? Oh, my gosh. Okay. And the the name of the woman, I mean, she's not remembered today. She was nothing, you know, really nothing in terms of being a writer. Um, her na- real name was, okay, let's see if I can say this. It's Helen Kestner Satterthwaite. <laughs> And she uh, wrote under pseudonyms of Sybil Norton and John Hawk. And I keep thinking, oh, Sybil Norton, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. But when look her up. It sounds familiar to me, too. But... Yeah, I looked her up in uh, at the Seattle Public Library, and there are no books by her in there. And I'm kind of thinking that there's another famous writer named Sybil something that's like that. Yeah. That's probably I'm conflating it with because I, I don't think she became a a well-known writer at all. I mean, you know, she sold books at the time, but nowhere near like Dorothy. So anyway, slap in the face. No, it's oh like a God. slap it's and a back slap, you know? Pointed, yeah. Know. <laughs> Just a clap. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like he did it on purpose. <laughs> anyway, uh, of course, I love Dorothy, and I'm sure she was a very difficult person in many ways, but of course I love her, so I'm on her side. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he's an asshole. Yeah. And, I, <laughs> and that might not be fair, but I certainly think so. Anyway, so we're coming up to Strong Poison, I promise. We're, we're working our way to this situation. So he marries this Helen. woman. Goes off Helen. And uh, what happens then is Dorothy then writes, in 1930, a novel called Strong Poison, which, uh, so this is, what, six, seven, eight years afterwards, but kind of finally per- percolates through. And she writes this no- novel, Strong Poison, which is actually, in some aspects, an a-, a recapitulation of their relationship and commentary on it. And that's what makes it so interesting. So Strong Poison is uh, where we meet Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is a mystery novelist, a detective writer. And we first meet her and she is in the dock being accused of the poisoning death of her lover, the man she was living with. Uh, Philip Boyce, I think his name yep, is, right? memory, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still working somewhat. Um, and Lord Peter Whimsey simply by looking at her, knows. Uh, I think it's, this is a woman he loves, and he knows that she's innocent, right? <laughs> yeah, his eyes somehow just penetrate through. He sees her regal bearing and her um, no- nobility in her mind and everything, and he's just like, nope, she didn't do it. I'm going to save her, right. and hopefully I'll marry her someday. Right, exactly. And that's one of the first things he says to her practically when they first yeah. meet is, will you marry me? And she's kind of like, uh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, uh, dude. And she's also like, yeah, I got 
15 uh, proposals already because I'm uh, like a good-looking murderess. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? exactly, exactly. <laughs> and plus, I won't be around long, maybe. Right. <laughs> um, and so, but her sales go through the roof. Yes. Because everybody wants to buy her books now that Notoriety. she's a... It's looking very bad for her, of course, until Lord Peter comes on the scene and, and uh, decides to help her. And uh, therein begins one of the most interesting, I think, and intriguing kind of uh, romances. Great romances. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, I don't. We don't want to get too, you know, in the weeds on the details of this. But do you think there's? Uh, I guess basically, she is accused of really killing her lover mm-hmm. with poison, and he tracks down all the the details and all the intricacies and fi- figures out who does it. I don't think we're giving any spoilers and that you know from page one, of course, she didn't do it because Lord Peter's in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> and and Dorothy doesn't write those it's kind of books. Kind. <laughs> She's not a femme fatale. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Do we need to really say anything more about the plot at this point? Um, Other than about much. the relationship? I mean, because their entire interaction over the course of this book specifically is as she's imprisoned um, is all conversations they have over like a, a table in the prison, basically. Right. And we don't want to give away any of the excitement of the book because he yeah. does do a lot of detecting. So don't think this is all just about them talking about their relationship. Yeah. And there's some good ass Miss Clemson in this one, too. Oh, there yeah. is. There is. Yeah. What well, she goes, doesn't she? She goes to a, a village yes. and goes undercover. And she conducts a seance, which is giving a little away, but really fun. So. Oh, yeah. She was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Miss Clemson, you really get a lot of respect for Miss Clemson out of this one. So good. thanks for bringing that up. But let's get back to the, how this relates to Dorothy's real life. Because when I first read this book, I'm looking at this going, this is some strange uh, motivation here of what's going on in this relationship. I've never heard anything like it. It's really strange. I just kind of suspended my doubt and said, okay, well, it was those days and maybe it just it never emotionally made sense to me. And then I find out that it was real. Yeah, it was her whole life. <laughs> yeah. And what happened was is uh, in the book, Harriet doesn't believe in sex before marriage. She believes in a standard uh, religious thing. But Philip Boyce, who is a poet. Another writer. Yes. Yeah, who, and they make commentary that he is not as good as she is right and he's highbrow yes he thinks he's highbrow anyway Mm -hmm. and she writes genre right Mm -hmm. same deal and basically uh, he convinces her that if she really loves him she will help you know live with him and have sex with him without marriage because he doesn't he doesn't believe in it and so she is uh she's convinced i guess uh harriet seems too level-headed, too self-possessed to ever be swept away like that. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you know, I guess maybe she changed a lot because she was in the prison. But she was, and she so she went and lived with him. And then what happened was, after they lived together for a while, Philip proposes marriage and offers to ask her to marry him, and she gets outraged. She goes ballistic. She leaves him. Yeah, because... He had said he didn't believe in it, and that's the reason she overcame her own morals and scruples, because he didn't believe in it so she could be with him. Mm -hmm. And then it was just a test. And he tested her to see if she would give up her most deeply held principles and beliefs for him in in kind of a frivolous way. Yeah. Because it really didn't matter to him. To be subservient to him. Yeah. Yeah. So as we dig, it kind of makes more sense to me. And I think that it was a very intelligent move on her part to be like, now I see your true character and I don't want to be with you. Right. But the way it's presented in the book, it's almost, it it is a very singular kind of strange seeming motivation. Right. 
Right, exactly. Uh, it, so it took me actually reading a couple times to really kind of get it. So hopefully if you read it, you'll be jump-started because we'll be telling you all this stuff about it. So essentially, even though that's weird, and I love your phrase, weird ass, because it is weird ass, <laughs> Uh, that's actually what happened between her and and John Cornos, except that she never slept with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did. She 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 dug her heels in, unlike Harriet, and, and wouldn't go there. But he basically said, uh, uh, "I want to sleep with you and have uh, sex with protection." And she said, "I will. I don't want to sleep with you if we're going to be using the rubber." And uh, he and so they never did it because that put the kibosh, excuse me, on the whole thing. So in 1930, Dorothy writes Strong Poison, which is about this. And I'm going to read you a quote. And basically she's describing Philip Boyce here, which I think is clearly her describing John Cornos. And it goes like this. Philip wasn't the sort of man to make a friend of a woman. He wanted devotion. I gave him that. I did, you know. But I couldn't stand being put on probation like an office boy to see if I was good enough to be condescended to. I quite thought he was honest when he said he didn't believe in marriage. And then it turned out that it was a test to see whether my uh, devotion was abject enough. Well, it wasn't. I didn't like having matrimony offered as a bad conduct prize. (laughs) So that really pretty much sums up what uh, her position was at the time. And... Then what happened is in 1932, John uh, Cornos, he writes an answering novel that, and it's amazing because on a lot of points they agree. A lot of the information is exactly the same. And his novel is called The Devil is an English Gentleman. And and this is not a detective novel. It's just a novel. Yeah. And he, um, it's very interesting because who reads that book today? Not, if anybody, not very many. Yeah, because we hate him. Anyway, so this is what he said in his book about his main character. And he says, He wanted a woman capable of giving abundantly, unstinting, thoughtless of tomorrow. If he were assured of Stella being capable of this, he would take her for his own forever. He waited for the generous gesture, for the token of abandonment on her part. It did not come. So... So it's exactly what, she, what she's saying is she, she read him exactly right. That's exactly what he wanted. Yeah. Was her to be so devoted uh, beyond everything else, beyond her own um, agency, her own principles, her own morality to him. Fascinating. And okay. then he would marry her. You know what that's called these days. I'll teach you a bit of young, youngster slang. Okay. We call um, Philip Boyer's uh, a fuck boy. Oh. Yeah. Oh, Philip Boyce is yeah. the name. Boyce. Huh. So we call that being a fuck boy. You do? Yeah. Oh, I thought a fuck boy was like a toy boy. Like, you know, he's somebody. Oh. No, it's somebody who, um, let's see if I can give you a good summary here, but it's like a, a boy who like presents himself as like sensitive and like, you know. Um, Artistic, yes, whatever. Um, there's several of levels. higher They're level. also soft boys, but oh. they, they're like, they have better intentions, but they're still fuck boys. Okay. Um, who, who really just, when it comes down to all these, li- past all these layers of like, meaning and connection just want to sleep with you okay yeah oh okay and then once they've slept with you all that meaning and connection disappears yeah yeah because it was just there whether consciously or unconsciously to get to the goal right okay all right well that totally makes sense so anyway so they had these dueling novels out there and certainly um philip boyce comes off as a as a jerk (laughs) uh, for sure 
very interesting in Devil is a Gentleman, Cornos describes Stella, who is Dorothy, and pretty much describes what she was like at the time he knew him. So this is what he said. He said, she is long neck, her eyes are blue, her hair is parted in the middle, and it was uh, when he knew her. She is tall and slender and walks with a bold swing. Her arms are slim and shapely. In personality, she is frank and direct with a come-hither look and a line of witty badinage. Her Leonardo smile is subtly and tantalizingly flirtatious, but her veneer of sophistication conceals sexual inexperience. She is a provincial virgin. And then he further goes on to say, she insisted on talking, on being heard, and indulged in an excess of badinage. Doubtless she would get, uh, oh, doubtless she would get by St. Peter with a pert phrase. And St. Peter's guarding heaven's gate to get into heaven. That's what that, for those of you who don't have any <laughs> religion. So I love this. She insisted on talking, on being heard. <laughs> I love it. But he does describe her like physically as very Quite appealing. a bit more attractive well, than well, she when she was younger. Herself. Yeah. This was, yeah, and she, yeah, exactly. She didn't see herself as being attractive. And then later she did become heavier because she was very indulgent in sensual pleasures of food, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. But it really, yeah, she describes her as being attractive physically, but interestingly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the thing is, is I'm sure she was very annoying, but, but it, it, that, that pattern grows where people won't listen to you. Mm-hmm. And you, you're trying to be either you get squashed and become silent and mousy, or like Dorothy, you push and go, "Hear me!" Yeah, you know. But anyway, I just thought that was a scream, right? And oh, this is this is good. This is more of, of the novel of his novel about Stella. So S- Stella does not understand what he wants. After all, she pushes him away and cries bitterly. She feels ashamed to have been cheap in his eyes. She says, I love you, and if you married me, you would have no cause for regret. I'd look after you. I'd do my best for you. But he wants surrender there and then, freely offered, not prompted by him. She asks him what he expects of her, but he is unwilling to tell her. At one o'clock, he leaves the flat and spends the rest of the night in a hotel. A week later, a frantic note arrives, pleading uh, with him to come and see her. Again, she cooks him a meal. Again, it is excellent with wine, black coffee, and Benedictine. Once more they undress and lie on the couch. Again they torment each other with unfulfilled desire. They talk of marriage, but Richard says he is not sure of himself, a way of saying he is not sure of her. And this is so interesting because this is exactly what they did. He would he would go away from her, and she would beg him to come back to her, mm-hmm. beg him and plead with him. In fact, she said if he married her, she would understand if he wanted to be with other women and she would just be with him. So basically, he would be free to have it all. I know. Of course, you know that if she did that, what would happen is as soon as he started sleeping with somebody else, she would hate it and she'd be angry and hurt and totally. But 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 she offered that to him. So that's uh, the delightful. Oh, can you imagine? Oh, it just sounds like the worst nightmare of a relationship, right? Totally. Oh man. And so and so this was the relationship that Harriet Vane had with her previous lover, and then she meets Lord Peter. The perfect Here to man. heal, here to soothe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Dorothy made great art out of her heartache, at least. Yeah. I wouldn't have traded that kind of experience to write a good book, but... Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, so Strong Poison, that's what uh, that that's what that is about. And Harriet comes... Uh, she doesn't have a whole a large part other than when she's talking to Lord Peter. He's still the one with the agency and everything. But she... I don't know. She, she comes through. She really, really comes through mm-hmm. in terms of her intellect, her... Uh, 
her self-possession. I think Harriet is what Dorothy wanted to be with mm-hmm. the man. She wanted to be the one in control, which she kind of was. She wanted to be swept away with love, which she ultimately was in the series, but not in this book. And, um, yeah, she wanted to be seen and valued both physically and intellectually. So we talked about Anne Dorland in a previous book as being like sort of um, one figment of Dorothy that she sort of wrote herself the, the un, into. The unattractive side, the, uh, the unattractive vision of herself, yeah. Right, the unattractive, um, perceived as unattractive, except by Whimsy, who sees her value. Yeah. Um, and then we get Harriet Vane, who's an ongoing protagonist, who's, as you described, sort of Dorothy's ideal and she's, she looks a little bit like Dorothy. She looks like Dorothy. She keeps being destri- described as handsome and yeah, not striking, beautiful. unusual, yeah. strong, strong, straight eyebrows, dark eyes. Uh, so she's not beautiful. She's not pretty. But she's beyond that. Um, so that's very interesting, too, in that she, she definitely tracks Dorothy's uh, characteristics. And, uh, and she is like a lot like Dorothy in that... She's very perceptive about the unfairnesses that go on around her. But at the same time, she also has Dorothy's criticism, particularly of other women, mm-hmm. um, She, which comes up later. Uh, she has sympathy, but she also has a lot of criticism as well. She seems to be very torn about... She's not judgmental. She's not an angel. Right. And, and she, she... I mean, uh, sorry, she's not not judgmental. Right. And she has characteristics that are considered stereotypically masculine and that Dorothy values those and not the ones that are stereotypically feminine. So, for example, she's self-supporting. She makes her own money. Um, she goes places on her own. She drives. She uh, she speaks out. She will be heard. She uses lots of quotations. Yes, much like Whimsy. And that was a thing. Mm-hmm. That was a thing back then. You had, you, you know, if you were always ready with an apt quotation, then that was considered that you were well-educated, intelligent. That was just good conversation. So everybody did that, and she always she would always be able to match Whimsy's quotations. She knew Latin too; she could quote back Latin to him. Just some other things about her: she doesn't care about money, which creates, uh, which is why they can be together, right? Because Whimsy right. is so well. She wealthy. cares a great deal about money, but she cares about money that she earns herself. Yeah, she's not gold digging in any way, and not interested in his rank or his wealth. And she has a lot of class criticism. She, that's the as we go through, that's probably the biggest criticism she has of Whimsy is his assumed privilege. Mm-hmm. Not only as a white man, but as a an aristocrat. Incredibly wealthy aristocrat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody who's never been hungry, who doesn't know. I mean, and he's a very generous, sensitive individual, but he also, they're just things he doesn't know, and, and certain assumptions he makes, and certain deferences he's given mm-hmm. that he takes and he uses. And that she just can't have that because that's just how the society works. Mm-hmm. Which is good writing on Dorothy's part. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Well, we'll talk more about their relationship as the series progresses of novels, but I guess I just want to say that one of the things that I find so good about it um, and about their relationship that progresses is that at the same time that there's this great romance and this great... Um, sort of lavishing of love and and everything um, from whimsy. At the same time, it's a very nuanced progression of feeling Mm. on both sides, even though whimsy is, like, coming in unconditionally, like, 
yeah, I'll marry you anytime you'll have me. It's still, there's still this nuance and like realism to how their feelings work and play off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we see that develop. I totally agree with yeah. you on that. Because Whimsy comes in, and oh, I want to marry you. But Whimsy's a damaged guy. He had that woman, Barbara, that he was in love with, right. and she threw him over. And he's got his uh, assumptions, his aristocratic assumptions. He's got um, his his vulnerability. He knows that she could destroy him by being cruel to him or whatever. And so he does have guardedness even yeah i I'd agree and hopefully we can find some really good quotes for you that we'll read yeah at... and then her it's a little bit clearer in that she moves toward the love and acceptance but it happens slowly and bit by bit and it goes forward and backward and she reacts to it and um hers is a little bit more of a understandable straightforward trajectory his is a little bit more complicated in in as much as he's there 100% to begin with and then under that there's a lot of to be peeled back yeah, yeah there definitely is for sure so i i don't know i i think that that's do do you think we should say anything more about the plot of strong poison i mean i just think they should read it yeah it's not necessary okay and i mean okay so we press we press we press for you to read them all chronologically but if you're only going to read one book from the series and you don't think you'll get to any of the other ones probably read strong poison oh uh, that or see i would say murder must advertise if you're only going to read one okay well if you're drawn if you think you'll be drawn in by the romance element yeah read strong so, poison I, yeah absolutely <laughs> if you want the two of them together for sure yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, we have been covering these uh, novels. We've done quite a bit here on Strong Poison. So I think maybe we should move on to the next phase of Dorothy's life and next the big scandal. So stay tuned for the the exciting uh, scandal that's going to be coming. Her next novels don't really relate to her life, so the, the, the scandal that happens. So I'm kind of thinking, let us... I'm going to just whip through the novels, and then we'll get to the the big scandal. Juicy bits. Juicy. Very, very juicy. Uh, Unbelievable. So the next one after Strong Poison is The Five Red Herrings. And actually, that came out in the same year, which is pretty amazing. I think she must have written that one, Licky Split, which actually kind of, you can see. Yeah, because it's a puzzle novel. It's a... It's a timetable novel, which is a lot of what, like, uh, Agatha Christie did. So so, it's sort of like she set herself the task. I don't know if we talked about this yet, but... Uh, have we mentioned that um, a lot of the novels, Dorothy takes a certain trope of detective writing and then writes a novel to that? Uh, we may or may not, but she she does it in a few, but not most of them. Okay. There, there's some that she does, and this is one this of them. This is one of them, yeah. For sure. Um, and uh, I think that she tended to do that later. Yeah. Uh, the first ones seem to be just pretty standard. Maybe the ones that she decides to crank out for some bucks. Yeah, maybe. Know? That might yeah. be it. Because this one is uh, my least favorite, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'll be honest, I cheated this time through. I did not read that one. <laughs> it has some stuff in it that I like, some things where uh, uh, he go basically Whimsy goes to... Uh, he goes to a Scottish, I believe, village. Right. Um, and this is actually... So what I did like about it, and I read it, actually there's a lady at a bookstore in our city who we talked to about the series, and she, she didn't remember them very well, but this is the one for whatever reason that stood out to her that she liked. Uh-huh. Um, and so I see what she saw in it, this 
it's set in a small uh, little like fishing village in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And this is a based on a real place that Dorothy loved to go. Mm-hmm. And so there is some real um, atmosphere, loving, yeah, atmosphere and details about the natural environment there. Probably even the streets and layouts are kind of realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I loved it for the atmosphere. Um, and it's about artists who take a retreat to the village. So the, the whole plot centers around these different artists and like who did it and and the timing and the, the thing yeah. is is somebody has an alibi for a certain time and uh, so, could so and so have gotten there in that time and so there are a lot of timetables and train train, train timetables and bikes and when, when when bicycles could get places and a car and um, all of that and but there's a lot of timetables and so um, you got to read those timetables and yeah. I I don't I did like the atmosphere and I liked. The person I think there's it's also worth a reading. lot of brogue. Yeah, she writes in dial in like a dialect for most right, of the yeah. people that have accents. Oh yeah, and that's stuff, right. Which yeah, is, can be hard to read. It can be entertaining, but also hard to read. Bunter's pretty good in this one. He is. Yeah, yes. that's uh, why that's you probably, like it. That's why you like that's it. Probably why Let's I be like honest. Lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a fair amount of Bunter in this there's one. There's Some good Bunter bits. He yeah. has to he has to deal uh, to to grapple with uh, life in a small village without all the amenities of a large city and all the fine and, and, and keep up standards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, but it it it's fine. It, it's a fine book. I um, it's just my my least favorite, I think, because of all the the timetable stuff. And uh, but it's like she decided to take on that sort of Christie esque aspect to it. But you still always have the characterizations and the and the personalities and so forth. Anyway, so that one's all right. And and there are red herrings. Yeah, I guess there are five of them. There are five. <laughs> oh, and I guess there there's another thing, which is that. Um, Aside from Clouds of Witness, where Whimsy was trying to defend his family, and so he was looking at his family as suspects. In this one, he's like, it's like neighbors and people in a small community that he's kind of gotten to know. And so he he does de- have to deal with a little bit with the intensity of the emotion of, like, someone you know, know yeah. personally is a murderer. And yeah. someone you may even like could be a murderer. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Okay. So then the next one is Have His Carcass, which I love. This is probably my second favorite one. Mm-hmm. And it's the next one where Harriet, Harriet is not in, she's in Strong Poison, she's not in Five Red Herrings. And then in this one, she is almost really the leading character. She's in it far more than Whimsy, although he's definitely in it. And she has um, gone on a walking tour after the trial, wanted to get away because she's a notorious woman now. But she has buku bucks because her sales of her books have just taken off. And now she's trying to write a new novel, and she's on a walking tour, so she's got Can a little I just backpack. say, that sounds so nice. What? I would love to do a walking tour oh, of England too. down the, the uh, hard-packed yeah. dirt along roads. Along the beach. Yes. I want to take, I'd like to take a bike tour. Oh, yeah. But you don't ride tandem a, bike. Yeah, you don't know how to ride bikes. We'll do a tandem bike okay. tour. With a little motor. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty flat, I think. Okay. I think. Anyway. So anyway, she goes on a walking tour. Uh, she comes to a gigantic rock that gets covered by the tide when the tide is in, but the tide is out. And on the rock, she finds a dead body. And um, and uh, and upon finding this body, she becomes embroiled. And I love things where people become embroiled <laughs> in uh, discovering the murderer, partially because she, well, she has multi-levels. One is the police kind of suspect her 
because she was a suspect before and if she might have murdered once she might have murdered again so there's that that pulls her in plus this is she's really great in that she's hard-headed and she's using this as a way to raise awareness about her new book she calls in the press release about the murder and her being there and um I don't know how I'm not sure how much we want to say about this but it's very colorful it takes you to a seaside resort mm -hmm. with dancing and there's gigolos there who dance with the the older women and you know get money from them and and young women too who dance with the older men and just it's beautiful and it's mm -hmm. very picturesque wouldn't you say totally and there so yeah there's a lot of local color like kind of activities that happen like concerts and stuff should we explain about have his carcass a little bit I think the, and the photographs I think that's oh that's that's a really good that's a really good point yeah, yeah. I think so have his carcass comes from uh, a Latin term a legal term right yeah it's uh, habeas corpus and basically the reference is that uh, Harriet finds the body but the tide is coming in and it's going to uh, pull the body out to into the ocean so once that tide comes in it's gone and she can't move the body's too heavy she can't pull it down the rock and across the beach and up the cliff and she can't do that so luckily she has a ca uh, camera like in the old days for those of you who don't know with them. like seven exposures yeah it's got film in it like in the old days and so she takes a bunch of uh, photographs and she takes uh, some artifacts off the body and does some measurements and writes down notes very detective like about footprints and where they were and so they have this whole uh catalog of clues that she's preserved but no body and the body doesn't show up for a long time right because it gets it gets pulled out to sea and finally well, I think it was a week couple weeks maybe mm -hmm. wasn't it before the body appears so they can't verify anything that she said yeah I think that's really neat she and she's um, she's so resourceful and quick-witted and like she has to reach into the it's a young man with his throat slit and she has to reach into this warm pool of blood and like or like pull something out of his pocket and her hand comes away but you know, it's just very visceral it is and she has an absolutely appropriate response to it that any human being would have of disgust and horror but at the same time she's strong-minded enough to go about her business in a very organized way to preserve as much evidence as she can so I guess part of this book is that it really it sort of it proves why whimsy's into her. Yes, um, yes, because then we get to be into her because we get to spend time alone with her, which is so smart. I don't know. I just I, know, I love she's... the way Dorothy shapes this relationship over time. She doesn't rush into anything aside from Peter being like, "Hey, let's get married right away." Yeah, but that's Peter rushing into yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> it, it is him, but underneath he's so mercurial on top. But underneath he and Dorothy, that's where they match. They're both very dogged and persistent. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, Dorothy, uh, and I mean, I'm sorry, not Dorothy, Harriet, ends up tramping finally down to, to find a phone, but she's in the country, and these are in the days where most people weren't, as they say in England, on the telephone. And so she has to walk several miles before she gets to a place where there's a phone. And she encounters several different people who may or may not have been involved. Maybe they were the murderer. Who knows? These are things that will be unraveled later. And ultimately, when she is under suspicion by the police it's not very overt but it's there um whimsy kind of gets wind of it and he shows up and of course with whimsy's cloak around her she's protected and uh not totally it's not like she's just off but the police are more gentle with her and they will do the investigation to clear her and everything at whimsy's behest and this just pisses 
her. In fact, she has trouble getting a room at a hotel. Oh, that's right, yeah. because she's a woman alone. She's a woman alone, and women alone, because that's... Are oh. questionable. Is it because they think maybe she's, like, going to take a clientele and... Well, they, it might be that, but it might not even be as overt of that. Just, it's not done. Yeah. And it's not acceptable for a woman. Yeah. And so it's a way these cultural mores are enforced, is by not even always as... Over to that, although maybe just maybe barriers it was. for the sake of barriers. Yeah, it's hard to say because I'm not back there. I probably would know. You know, we'd all be able to read it very clearly if we were of the times. But it's then when they find out she's a friend of Lord Peter Whimsey's, well, <laughs> she can give her the best room in the place, you know. Yeah. And that just irritates her and pisses her off so much. And she takes that out on Whimsy. Yeah, she does. provides she, tension. Yeah, and, and he takes it. There's one line where he says, so please remember that uh, you can hurt me a great deal more than I can hurt you. And which is a very vulnerable thing to say because she is hurting him at the time. And they are having a fight. But it's great because they do have, it's not, it, it's a really interesting fight yeah. that they have while they're, but yet at the same time they are working beautifully together in terms of, coming up with the clues, uh, interpreting the clues, feeding off each other, giving each other information that sparks. And Dorothy doesn't allow Harriet to totally take over. Whimsy's the brilliant one. He's really the one with that sort of Tesla-like association, association, intuitive, Einsteinian uh, detective ability. And Dorothy's the one, but Dorothy's very smart, and she makes a lot of connections, and and maybe even real-world connections or bring brings perspectives that Whimsy doesn't have. And Whimsy always acknowledges that and treats her like an equal and appreciates her work. And that's something I think that Dorothy probably didn't get much in her life, nor did many women. Absolutely. And, and craved, yeah. Yeah, craved that. Even though, uh, well, we're, when we get to the next book, we'll talk about her successes and her professionalism and so forth. Dorothy's. So, Dorothy's, yes. But then this book also brings in a character. Uh, there's an older woman, and she's probably not even that old. What, maybe fifty? She's probably in her fifties. Fifties, and they call her, she's a widow, I suppose. Yeah, she's a she widow. She was married very young to a very old rich man, and so she's he he passed away, and she's inherited a lot of money. And she's got a she's got a son, but she meets this young. She's gig- kind of a cougar. Yeah, yeah. yeah she meets this young gigolo. He's probably what in his twenties, maybe late twenties. Yeah, uh, maybe thirty ish so she's about 20 25 years older than him and she actually I, I don't know she she married very young she might have been in her 40s and that's actually what I was thinking oh, okay she might Even be in younger. her 40s yeah so she might be about 20 years older than this guy yeah and anyway she's in love with him deeply in love with him and wants to marry him he's very and, romantic with her might be for her money might not be yeah and he he's the the murder victim so the the key, the, the point that I'm trying to get to is that um, she appears in this book as a character because of her relationship to the murder victim, and she's very emotional. She's very uh, expressive of her feelings. She'll cry at the drop of a hat. She's very tender, very, and uh, Harriet just can't stand her at first. She's she's so critical the way she writes about her, how ridiculous she is, and how really ugly she is in a way. The way she describes her is ugly. Mm-hmm. And, and too much makeup and overdressed. and Silly, not silly. critical yeah. thinking. Right. Yeah. To a fool. Yeah. Foolish. But by the end of the book, it's very interesting that she becomes her her guardian, her ally, her, yeah. her shield in so many ways. And you had a very, uh, I think, interesting perspective on the role that this woman plays in terms of, of Dorothy's own psyche. Yeah, so... 
Um, and Dorothy has has a few characters like this in some of the other books as well. This older woman who is sort of trying to be younger than she is. She's desperately lonely. She's um, interested in a younger man, and that makes her silly, vulnerable, etc. Um, and I think that that is exactly what Dorothy was afraid of becoming, which is why she's so critical about it. Um, she doesn't necessarily see herself in these women. She does not want to see herself in but, these but, women. But she, it's not even what she becomes, but uh, what she's afraid she'll become. It's what she does become. Mm-hmm. Because you think of John Cornos mm-hmm. and even Eric Welpton, where she's like, she would feed them every day and cook for them and, and, and say, I'll marry you and you can sleep with other women. I don't care. You know, somebody who, she really became pretty abject, which was a lot like this woman did. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure she unconsciously is writing this because it's something about herself that she doesn't like. Yeah, so that's that's another place where you can see it. I think that's interesting. And, and it does also serve to highlight sort of the um, ageism and misogyny of the time that still exists but seems mm-hmm. so blatant in these novels in terms of characters' attitudes. Absolutely. So that we see that in this novel. And then the other thing I think that's, crucial other than just the fun of this novel oh, the great story there's a really great chase scene bunter gets to go on a chase oh yeah scene. that was really good yeah that was in disguises yeah. and and honestly uh, the plot of this one is kind of the most um out there yeah almost yeah it yeah. is and international intrigue yeah. and uh oh and codes and they, yeah. they, they break code secret codes and it's really really fun so i we don't want to get into all this analysis and not communicate how fun this book is it's Mm -hmm. really really a good one it's my second favorite uh and then regarding harriet and whimsy we talked about the fight and it shows a deepening of their connection in terms of their fighting but it also shows on harriet's end her movement toward beginning to see whimsy as attractive as uh wanting to be attractive to him kind of like when he pulls away or is not there for her she begins to feel it, and which she, is so real. Yeah, it's like isn't the, that just how humans work? It's a push pull. Yeah, she's like she wants to push him away because she's afraid of the vulnerability. But then when he's not there, she's like, "Where is he?" And there's this uh, bit about um, him advising her how to dress, that not in a not in a bad way. No, not no, in a no. Way that you don't want to be told. But... No, no, no. He he. Well, I think we could say it's not spoiling anything. He says to her, he says, "Oh." Uh, she needs to get a new dress or something. He says, oh, well, I'd love to see you in... The color of wine. The color of wine, not the color of... Because he's a aficionado of women's dress and how women look good because that's just one of his characteristics as a man of the world. And she... she at first she balks and she's kind of like... Mm. But then she goes out and she gets one just like yeah. the color that he said. And then he sees her wearing the color that he thought she should wear and sort of like this unspoken understanding of, okay, I'm a little more accepted here. She's accepted me a little bit. There, there are very good scenes between them in this one. So shall we move on to my favorite book? Yeah, I now, think so. Now, did you say what your favorite is so far? Is it Strong um, Poison? Uh, there are parts of Strong Poison that I would definitely uh, list as my favorites, but I'd have to say, oh, this is harder for me than it is for you because this next one is also one of my top favorites. I honestly think it's the most entertaining. It has the most interesting slice of life into a very <laughs> specific part of the, uh, is it? the 30s in England. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it really gives you a sense. And I love like uh, like a movie about a record store and then you get to see how the record store really works in High Fidelity or something yeah, like yeah. that. It's, it's got that kind of esque-ness yeah, to it. It really it anchors you in a time and place. And I think Havis Carcass does, but Murder Must Advertise does the most. 
This is, I just love this book. Now, Harriet is not in this book. This is just purely a whimsy. There's one mention of Harriet, which is kind of nice. Because... He, doesn't, he doesn't mention her. He just mentions a woman. Yes. That he's going to have dinner with. Yes, but yeah, that's what I meant. But you, you assume it's Harriet, but it's so nice, I think, that the space exists in the series also mm-hmm. for them to do live their lives independently and you just kind of understand that their relationship develops. Outside of our vision. Yeah. So anyway, what, uh, what this is about is... I wanted to move into this next book because I'm excited and I love it, but let's I think it's time Dorothy. to talk about this. Let's talk about the scandal. Drum roll. Okay, so Dorothy, after she broke up with Corn or Cornos, I don't know, I don't remember. Anyway, they broke up, and they, they exchanged letters for a while, and then he married this woman, and she, on the rebound, she got together with this guy. Uh, his name was Bill White. And Bill White was a not a writer. He was a mechanic, and he fixed cars, which is interesting because she's interested in cars, and she uh, really got interested in motorcycles and loved motorcycles. He'd take her riding on his motorcycle, and you will see in Have His Carcass, uh, and this is probably in the 1923-1924 when she met him. Have His Carcass uh, was written or released in 1932, again, several years later, but in it, she will show her automotive knowledge because it becomes one of the key points in solving it uh, that she would know from being taught by Bill White about uh, engines and how they work. And Interesting. All, yes, remember that, that yeah, one about I the do. garage? Yeah, So anyway, that's where she got a lot of her knowledge from that from. And Bill was, I don't know, it was just written in the stars clearly. Bill was not going to last because Bill was not in not an intellect. He was a rough and tough, he-man, standard kind of guy who probably, you know, didn't have a whole lot of respect for women, but, you know, was virile in the sack, and she cooked for him, and she basically took on that very wifey kind of role that she would keep subsuming herself into. And there's this quote in her, one of the biographies that said, by now Bill had made her other friends seem a feat, soft-gutted, she called them perhaps borrowing the phrase from Bill. In contrast, he was virile, tough, and foul-mouthed. He told her dirty stories and recited limericks, and she, sitting on his knee in the big armchair, invented others, each obsceneer than the last. Wow. I know. (laughs) Very earthy relationship. (laughs) Yeah, so she liked, so she got that kind of, kind of side to her, and uh, he fulfilled it, and he was, he was definitely a rebound kind of guy, and uh, she did actually end up sleeping with him so he was her first sexual you know full-on sexual experience and so they slept together for a while and for you know they were together for a year or so maybe what happened was even though in this case they actually did use contraception oh something went awry and Uh. she got pregnant out of wedlock which was a very big deal in 1923 so the scandal basically was she was working at a job at an advertising agency by then, which we will talk more about. But she had a good job, and she was making a good living, and she needed to make a living. Uh, Her books were not selling enough to support her. She had to figure out what to do. So she was able to hide it, really, for Hmm. seven, eight months, and she had to figure out what to do. So what happened was she ended up taking a leave of absence that she was ill or needed to get away, and she was gone for about six weeks, I think, and went into the country and in a special home where they did these things for unwed mothers. And she had her son. His name is John Anthony. And John Anthony was born 
we're going to do a call back here. I mentioned in the first episode a cousin of hers that she was very close to named Ivy Shrimpton. And I said she would be coming back, good old Ivy. Good last name. Uh, uh, Ivy had, and her mother had a little house where they took care of children. That's how they made their living was by, you know, sort of. Like foster kids or. Okay, and then not foster kids, but people who needed, back in those days, this was a thing, I guess, uh, where you couldn't take care of your kids. So they would, like, nurse made them and take care of them and so forth. So Dorothy farmed John Anthony off to Ivy. Ivy took care of him so that Dorothy could go back to work and he lived with Ivy and Ivy was a cousin and they were very good to him and you know took good care of him and everything and Dorothy made sure that she had anything he needed she took care of and she visited and he you know thought she was a cousin or an aunt of his and didn't have any idea that she was his mother until after she died. Wow. Yeah. What she had hoped was is that Ivy would take care of him until and at some point she would marry and then she would be able to adopt him and then he would live with her. And what happened was, is she then later met probably about a year, year and a half after she had John Anthony. John Anthony was born in January of 1924. In 1925, she met this guy, Oswald Atherton Fleming, <laughs> AKA, he was known as Mac. And she met Mac Fleming and he was, again, a writer. He was a journalist, kind of older than her, rough and ready kind of guy, a man's man, I don't know, kind of maybe even saw himself as a little Hemingway-esque. He was not doing all that well financially. He was kind of struggling. He never really was able to kind of make his way. And she uh, met him, decided she liked him well enough. They got married, and she had hoped that they would then adopt John Anthony, but it never worked out. He didn't, Mac didn't really want to have a, you know, Mm -hmm. basically he was kind of a baby of the he wanted to be mothered instead. Yeah, he wanted, yeah. and Dorothy, she did everything. She bought a house, and she took care of him, and he eventually became, uh, he was an alcoholic, and he eventually became incapacitated, and John Anthony just never... Got to come home. Got to come home. Oh. Yeah, and he went to school, and went to a good school, and she took care of him and everything. They stayed married until he died, but Mac just became more and more incapacitated as Dorothy became more and more successful. Mac couldn't really get it, you know, get much writing gigs. He got every once in a while something sporadic and he just wasn't very successful as a writer and she became more and more successful and richer and eventually she had plenty of money from Lord Peter that she didn't have to work in another job and she went and she could travel and uh, was on the radio and all kinds of stuff and Mac just kind of sunk down so he became pretty abusive to her. It's possible he might even been physically abusive but he definitely berated her and criticized her and took all of his frustration and jealousy out on her in a way that I have likened to the soldier in the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, who he was, had PTSD and couldn't keep a job, and his wife was working and taking care of him. I saw his statements as being belittling and putting her down and her apologizing for and, and making excuses for his, his bad behavior and his anger and his nastiness to her. I mean, that's how I saw it. I know you didn't see it that way, but I see that as a parallel to what ended up happening with her and Mac later. And um, that was in 1928, and they were married in 1925. Yeah, and so I, I didn't really read it that way, but since you pointed it out to me and then told me about Dorothy's personal history, I'm definitely... Well, also um, other in other parts of the book, which I can't point to right now, when the wife isn't there. Uh, so p- people can read that book and... 
see, I if, think they, see if they agree with me. But anyway, that's what was going on in her life during this period. When she had been with John Cornos and had the baby and met Mac, during all of that period, she was still out there uh, publishing her books and working full-time at a job in an advertising agency. And uh, so this would be in the 1924, 25, 26. I'm not sure exactly when she left Benson's. That's the name of the ad advertising agency. But she was there for about eight years, I think, something along, along those lines. And uh, ultimately, after she'd been gone from Benson's for a while, she wrote a murder mystery that took place in an advertising agency. And basically, the layout of the building uh, was the same in this mystery novel. There is a spiral staircase that is a key architectural feature, uh, features in the plot, that actually was, uh, still exists today in that building where Benson's used to be, wow. which I think is fantastic. And this book that I love, my favorite, is Murder Must Advertise, and that's in 1933. And I think at this point we will wrap up the episode and we'll come back for another section and talk about these final novels, the very end of Dorothy's life. But definitely get out there and start reading before we... <laughs> 